On the Record with Gavin Riley. Brought to you by PwC on News Talk. We're now joined in the studio by People for Profits TD, Paul Murphy. Paul, your thinking is on Wednesday, but before we talk about all of that, as you are a TD for Dublin South West, I'm sure you have some thoughts about those dreadful events in Tallow overnight. Yeah, I mean, obviously it's just horrendous. The worst possible tragedy that you can imagine to have young people's lives taken in that uh, way. So, you know, it's just... It's so it's unspeakable in terms of the impact it would have in terms of the, the family and the wider uh, community. So just my full thoughts and solidarity are with the, the family and the and the community. Uh, no doubt if we have any updates across the afternoon, as I said, we'll bring them to you in our bulletins uh, here on News Talk. Um, it is an interesting time to be uh, an eco-socialist because you could sort of argue that we have the, the collapse of the established financial order and the collapse of the established energy order all at the same time. So there might be some people who are tuning into your thinking on Wednesday, hoping that you've got some big ideas up your sleeve to fix both. Yes, I think that's right. I think that um, we're seeing a huge crisis of capitalism right now in terms of its failure to be able to deliver very basics for people. I mean, we're in the fifth richest country in the world and it can't deliver housing for people, can't deliver affordable energy for people. You know, hundreds of thousands of people are going to be faced with the choice between heating and eating this winter. Um, And simultaneously, it is driving us into an absolute ecological disaster, both in terms of climate change and in terms of the biodiversity crisis. I mean, and that's not that's not some far distant future thing now. That's that's right here and now. Mm. That's in Pakistan. That's in Europe. Um, In terms of heat waves, in terms of floods, we're seeing the impact and we need a radical alternative to tackle both of these crises, which are absolutely intertwined. And that's, I think, the eco-socialist alternative, um, which starts from saying that the needs of ordinary people and our planet should come before the profits of the corporations. So where do you start? Uh, You start by saying, uh, I would say in terms of energy prices in this country, that it is not acceptable for the big corporations to charge whatever they like and to maximise their profits and to have profits increasing profits of oil and gas companies trebling quadrupling compared to last year prices of profits of electricity companies in this country uh, significantly increasing prices of profits of food companies significantly increasing institutional investors increasing what they're taking in and so immediately what we need to have is price controls we reject so the a, idea a price cap on energy for example a price cap on energy um, and this is something i mean the government doesn't like to talk about the fact that they have the power to do it because they definitely don't want to do it so they don't want to interfere with the market you think they but, have that power already correct under the consumer protection act and um, they need to do two strokes of a pen two ministerial orders one to declare an emergency which there's definitely an emergency in the supply of electricity electricity, of gas, of fuel, and secondly then to set maximum prices in those areas. If the government won't do that, we have done it for them. We've written a bill, uh, which will be moving in this uh, dull term, which sets out the maximum anyone can charge for electricity is 25 cent per unit, for gas, 8 cent per unit, for petrol and diesel, 175 per litre, for kerosene, 1 euro per litre. That it can be done. They don't need to wait for our legislation, mm. but if they won't use their power, no. we're so going to do it. it. It can be done legally, but I suppose the question is, can it be done commercially? Because, for example, we've already seen in the UK where they've tried to introduce price caps uh, to try and make sure that energy companies weren't charging above and beyond what the regulator thought was a reasonable amount. And what we've had over time is that the raw price of uh, energy and electricity production has gone up. Then a lot of companies are unable to meet that, that they simply cannot operate at any kind of a profit, nor can they sustain the losses of providing energy within those caps. So the cap has to be raised and raised and raised again because energy providers are literally going out of business in Britain at those rates. Well, two so why, why wouldn't the same thing yeah. happen here? Well, one is it can be done. It is being done within the European Union right now. Malta, Spain.
Spain, France, Portugal all have introduced price crap caps to bring down uh, electricity prices substantially. So it can be done. Um, Secondly, we know right now that these companies are making substantial profits. So the first thing that the price caps would do is eat into those profits, reduce those super profits that they're making at the moment. If it comes to a point that it is a choice between companies being profitable and people being able to afford enough energy to heat their homes and have their lights on this winter, well then we and people before profit are certainly very clear about which choice we make. And, you know, we stand for a renationalised energy supply mm. and full energy sector. We, we had the cheapest electricity in Europe before we had deregulation and effective privatisation of energy electricity supply. And um, now we have one of the most expensive in Europe. And so we, we think we should renationalise the energy also precisely because of the climate catastrophe. We should be using mm. a nationalised, publicly owned electricity company to drive yeah, a rapid but, transition to green but, energy. But that takes longer than a price cap. So if you introduce a price cap tomorrow, as you believe the government has the right to yep. do so, and if that price price cap then ends up driving providers out of the market or out of business entirely. We, we, nas- we nationalise them. We na- if, okay, their, their share price you collapses. Can't do, you can't do that overnight. Of course you can. Of course you can. can. It's, it's, it's the idea. And that, this you, is you, you want to go to Centrica PLC, for example, and nationalise Borgosh Energy, one of their own subsidiaries. Correct. And you could do that overnight. Correct. And immediately. If you had a, a left government with socialist policies that is actually committed to putting people's needs first. Because you were, I heard you earlier on asking the question about, like, how can we get these companies not to... What, why are they still putting up prices whenever they're doing well in terms of profits? Well, because... That's the law. Like the the responsibility of the directors of the company is to maximize profits for their shareholders. So this the, the law of capitalism is to say that these people should not care about the fact that people are going to die as a result of cold th- this winter. And that's just a logic that we we absolutely reject. That's why we're socialists. That's why we think we need to have the key sections of the economy in democratic public ownership and actually plan things. And I am convinced that it is the only way we will avoid absolute climate catastrophe on a global scale like capitalism is simply not Mm. going to do it this may be getting a little bit too far into the weeds but if you had a nationalised energy sector and we know that we we are incapable right now of generating as much energy on these islands Mm -hmm. as we need to supply our own needs we're going to have to find the deficit some way and it still seems like the way to do that is gas and if it's not gas then it might be something like nuclear I, I, I think it doesn't make any sense in the world that we're in and the disaster that we're heading straight for with our eyes very wide open in terms of the science of climate change to invest in any more fossil fuel infrastructure. It makes no sense at all. We're already going to miss the already inadequate mm. targets that so, are set So out. then how, how so, do you bridge the gap then? Yeah, because well, if you have a nationalised bri- energy yep. uh, provider, if, if all the providers, all the retail providers are all nationalised and they all need to get energy from somewhere else to fulfil their customers' needs, yep. they have to pay the world market prices and they're going to have to pay for gas. So how does it get we, any cheaper? We, we, we have need to have a programme in this country of, of, of reducing energy usage. Um, and that isn't reducing energy usage on the stuff that's useful for ordinary people. But we need to reduce energy usage, by example, by saying, OK, definitely no more data centres. They're currently using, what, 14, 15% of our electricity. No thanks to that going up to 30% by the end of this decade. We need to get people out of private cars into electrified, green, expanded Transport, public transport, the way to do that is to have free public transport. We need to reduce energy usage in people's homes, for example, by prioritising the rollout of free, attic insulation, upfront, no cost to ordinary people, and then go for full, deep retrofits again at no cost to ordinary people. That can be done and the benefits can be shared out between the state and the individual householder 
over a period of, of 10 years. So people see their bills drop, we see a reduction in, in energy usage. That's necessary. Like if we continue to expand energy usage, it's the, the point about we're trying to go kind of go down on an upwards escalator and we aren't going to be able to have the shift to renewable energy, 100% renewable energy in time if we're just going to like mm. bow down to the demands of TikTok to say we need more data centres in Ireland at a time that there's an energy crisis. The thing about data centres though is that are they not sort of whether they're in Ireland or not is a separate question but aren't they sort of indispensable for the modern way in which we run our lives? If you have an email account the server is in the cloud somewhere yep. and that cloud is in a data centre. If you use Twitter the, the yep. tweets that you post that you and I both post on Twitter are in data centres. The yep. podcast that you produce yep. lives on a data centre sure. somewhere. Don't they have to exist somewhere? Somewhere. All that stuff, I think, I mean, that, that's a choice for society as a whole, but I think that is all necessary, socially useful stuff. But the problem is that a large amount of what is happening in the data centres is not socially useful. So the thing that uses the most energy in the data centres is not just the storage of the energy. It's running algorithms on the data that is already in there to target you with an ad for something that you never realised you wanted from Wish or whatever. And I think that's the discussion we need to have is like, why are we allowing these like huge, very powerful tech corporations to decide they're going to spend all this energy that society needs on these things that are not socially useful? So okay. I think, again, you, we should have these social media giants in public ownership and let's have a discussion on not having this targeting of people with unnecessary advertising, the amount of energy spent on advertising. For, you know, In this city, for example, it's estimated those big electric billboards that you see around the place that are linked to the Dublin bike, Dublin bike Scheme, we're spending more energy on those ads than we're saving through the Dublin Bike Scheme. So we need to have a discussion in society about what, what are we prioritising and I would prioritise decent jobs for people, decent warm right. homes for people, public transport for people and, and so on. Can I talk to you about the, the recent controversy around um, TDs who are landlords and their full um, compliance with the um, the either the uh, disclosures regulations or indeed the registration with the RTB. Um, you've been at the forefront of campaigning about the conduct of some government TDs and making complaints to SIPO about non-compliance with the, the disclosures rules. Um, I'm pretty sure that the punishment under SIPO for not complying with the disclosures rules is that they make you go back and comply. So if a TD has already come clean and admitted that they should have uh, disclosed something and they've gone back to try and make corrections, then what's the point of a complaint? Um, to try and draw out the reality of what has taken place. Um, the, uh, it's a show trial then, isn't it? Uh, well, <laughs> it's appropriate that people, that there be investigations um, into how, I mean, Robert Troy went back and changed his declarations over a period of 11 years. Mm. 11 years of... You know, his version of the story is 11 years of kind of deep incompetency in terms of filling out a very basic form that spells it out in black and white in every single page. We're not just talking about the 31st of December. We're talking about uh, the whole year. So an investigation, a finding against a minister, I think, would be important to say that the ethics legislation actually means something. Breaches of the ethics legislation have consequences. And but, you're well, not... but hang on, but what are the consequences, though, if, if Sippo would say Robert Troy should go back and amend his disclosures and he's already done it? Well, it, what's the consequence? I mean, it, that people can take that into account, that people in his constituency at the next election can say, oh, well, Sippo made a finding against this person. He said that he had breached the ethics legislation repeatedly, as I believe he, he did. And then that's up for the people in his constituency to, to vote on that basis. But I think such findings would be useful. Obviously, having Sippo 
with more teeth. I'm sure you've read the, the annual reports every single year, yeah. which finish with like, there's like four or five pages of recommendations, maybe 20 on a page, mm. and they t- report on progress to date on almost every single box is no, 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 yeah. no. So we need to actually give the ethics watchdog teeth to be able to do more than that. But even, even given the limited powers that they have, it's better that there be an investigation than there not be. In uh, the last couple of days, of course, separate to this, uh, including by myself, there's been reporting about Stephen Donnelly, the Minister for Health, and some of his previous campaigns to change the tax treatment of what he terms accidental landlords and he himself then latterly described himself as an accidental landlord. Uh, I know that you made a complaint in the last few days to the Dole Committee on Members' Interests because it would appear that that's the place that you're supposed to go to to complain if you believe that a member of the Dole was supposed to have declared an interest in a debate and didn't do so. I believe you've heard back recently. Yes. So there's an interesting loophole whereby if you want to make a complaint about a member not declaring their interests in a debate, for example, which is very clearly the, the law that if you're participating in a debate, you have a material interest, you're meant to declare it at the start or during your speech. Um, you're meant to normally go for a member of the Dáil to the Committee on Members' Interests in the Dáil. So that's supposed to, to be the first port th- of that's, that's supposed to be the, the first port of uh, call. However, um, they've got back to me to say that they don't cover ministers. So the kind of ironically, once you become a minister... Even if this is a, this is about stuff that Stephen Donnelly did when he was not a minister, when he was just mm. a member of or, the or, or alleged to have done, to be fair, uh, but yes, okay, yeah, yeah. I mean the, the speaking and so on. Um, ironically, once you become a minister, you're now then shielded. They say, "Oh no, we don't deal with this," and then they pointed me the direction of Sippo okay. again. So I've also now submitted a complaint to Sippo to in relation to it. But do Sippo have the power to investigate ministers for not disclosing stuff if, in fact, the law says that you're supposed to go to the committee and members' interests? So. Certainly, the Committee on Members' Interest interpretation of the law is that they deal with non, what are called office holders, so people, TDs ministers who aren't, or, mem- aren't or ministers, exactly. Whatever, yeah. um, and they say it is SIPO that deals with the, those people who okay. are ministers, even although it's a peculiar area here because we're dealing with someone who wasn't a minister at the time and is now. So we'll see what, what SIPO say about it. And it's possible, therefore, that uh, SIPO, we, we wait to see what they say about that, but SIPO could potentially turn around and say, well, our understanding of the law is that, that you don't come to us. You're supposed to go it, to... Yes, it, I mean, if they come or, back... Or then, that then, we don't have the power. Then there's a very serious flaw in the law has been exposed, which is that there would be this grey area effectively where someone, if you were a TD when you allegedly did the thing that breaks the law, but you're no longer, there effectively would be no one to investigate. So we'll we'll see. Um, if it were... Just as a separate note, and a final question on this because I have to let you go. Um, do you believe that uh, Stephen Donnelly, when uh, advocating for tax changes for accidental landlords, even if, as it turns out, those changes would not have materially affected him himself... Do you think that he was required to state on the Dáil record that he was, in fact, a landlord, given that his annual disclosure since 2011 has always disclosed that he owned a couple of other properties? Yes. I mean, the, the law is very, very clear on this. To quote, a, a member who proposes to speak uh, or vote in proceedings to which this section applies and who has actual knowledge that he or she is a connected per- or a connected person has a material interest in the subject matter of the proceedings mm-hmm. shall, if he or she proposed to speak in the proceedings, make a declaration of the fact aforesaid in the proceedings before or during his or her speech. Okay. So, but, like if he's propose- if, but if he's proposing an amendment which doesn't benefit him specifically, if he is saying the- that people who fulfil these criteria should get a tax cut and I don't. 
Yeah, and should he so, still disclose so potentially he, he gets out on a technicality on those but on the, on some occasions where he spoke so in some occasions he spoke about being an accidental landlord and that was defined as someone who lived in a place for two years then was out of it and renting out it out while renting somewhere else um, and he wouldn't meet that criteria but on other occasions he spoke about accidental landlords without giving that definition and therefore potentially he would have been included and did have an obligation to say hands up it doesn't it doesn't discount what he has to say but it's just relevant information for people to know mm. hands up I would benefit from the change that I'm now proposing and you think that therefore he should have said I, it explicitly I, out loud I, I think it's clear yeah and I think the Taoiseach's explanation that oh he had it in he had it in his like annual declaration of interest the thing that Robert Troy wasn't doing that isn't that isn't a defence to that because that is very very clear that you have to say it while you're speaking uh, A question has come into 53106 and I'll make this the final question do you believe that uh, TDs when elected should be forced to dispose of any other property or is it reasonable that somebody who gets elected who already has a home or a second home or has inherited something from family uh, should be allowed to keep it on So I think given the disproportionate influence of landlords in the doll, I mean and I believe we have a very much a pro-landlord and pro-big landlord government I think landlords in the Dáil should not be voting on legislation that would have an impact on them for example they can keep the house but lose the vote on those particular matters I mean on the last day of the the Dáil before the summer break we had the, the rent reductions bill which would reduce rents across the country would create again a control on rents linking it to 25% of people's okay. income in a given area and that was defeated. It was defeated by landlords' votes. If landlords hadn't voted, okay. it would have passed. Uh, it is your thinking on Wednesday. I'm sure we'll talk more to you about SIPO uh, and everything else then. Paul Murphy, thanks very much for coming into studio. Paul Murphy of People for Profit TD for Dublin South West. On the record with Gavin Riley. Sunday morning at 11. Brought to you by PWC. Great minds think unalike. Different skill sets, diverse opinions, it all adds up to the new equation. On News Talk.